0: CHAPTER ONE of old town folks this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org Recording by Lynn Thompson old town folks by Harriet Beecher Stowe CHAPTER ONE old town and the minister It has always been a favorite idea of mine there is so much of the human in every man that the life of any one individual, however obscure, if really and vividly perceived in all its aspirations, struggles, failures and successes, will command the interest of all others. This is my only apology for offering my life as an open page to the reading of the public besides this however every individual is part and parcel of a great picture of the society in which he lives and acts and his life cannot be painted without reproducing the picture of the world he lived in and it has appeared to me that my life might recall the image and body of a period in new england most peculiar and most interesting the impress of which is now rapidly fading away i mean the anti railroad times the period when our own hard rocky sterile new england was a sort of half hebrew theocracy half ultra democratic republic of little villages separated by a pathless ocean from all the civilization and refinement of the old world forgotten and unnoticed and yet burning like live coals under this obscurity with all the fervid activity of an intense newly kindled peculiar and individual life my early life lies in one of these quiet little villages that of old town in massachusetts it was as pretty a village as ever laid down on the banks of a tranquil river the stream was one of those limpid children of the mountains whose brown clear waters ripple with a soft yellow light over many colored pebbles now brawling and babbling on rocky bottoms dashing hither and thither in tiny cascades throwing white spray over green mossed rocks and then again sweeping silently with many a winding curve through soft green meadows nursing on its bosom troops of water-lilies and bordering its banks with blue and white violets snow-flaked meadowsweet and wild iris hither and thither in the fertile tracts of meadow or upland through which this little stream wound there were some two dozen farmhouses hid in green hollows or perched on breezy hill-tops while close alongside of the river at its widest and deepest part ran one rustic street thickly carpeted with short velvet green grass where stood the presiding buildings of the village first among these was the motherly meeting-house with its tall white spire, its ample court of sheds and stalls for the shelter of the horses, and the various farm wagons which came in to Sunday services. There was also the schoolhouse, the academy, and Israel's grand store, where everything was sold from hoe handles up to cambric needles, where the post office was kept, and where was a general exchange of news as the different farm wagons stood hitched around the door and their owners spent a leisure moment in discussing politics or theology from the top of codfish or mackerel barrels while their wives and daughters were shopping among the dress goods and ribbons on the other side of the store next to the store was the tavern with a tall signpost which used to creak and flap in the summer winds with a leisurely rich easy sort of note of invitation a broad veranda in front with benches an open tap-room where great barrels of beer were kept on draught and a bar where the various articles prescribed by the temperance society were in those days allowed an open and respectable standing this tavern verandah and taproom was another general exchange not in those days held in the ill repute of such resorts now the minister himself in all the magnificence of his cocked hat and ample clerical wig with his gold-headed cane in his hand would sometimes step into the tap-room of a cold winter morning and order a mug of flip from obsequious amaziah the host and while he sipped it would lecture with a severe gravity a few idle ragged fellows who were spending too much time in those seductive precincts the clergy in those days felt that they never preached temperance with so warm a fervour as between the comfortable sips of a beverage of whose temperate use they intended to be shining examples the most vivid image of respectability and majesty which a little boy born in a massachusetts village in those early days could form was the minister in the little theocracy which the pilgrims established in the wilderness the ministry was the only order of nobility they were the only privileged class and their voice it was that decided ex cathedra on all questions both in church and state from the choice of a governor to that of the district school teacher our minister, as I remember him, was one of the cleanest, most gentlemanly, most well-bred of men, never appearing without all the decorums of silk stockings, shining knee and shoe buckles, well-brushed shoes, immaculately powdered wig, out of which shone his clear, calm, serious face like a moon out of a fleecy cloud. Old Town was originally an Indian town and one of the most numerous and powerful of the Indian tribes had possessed the beautiful tracts of meadow and upland farms that bordered the sea Pork river. Here the great apostle of the Indians had established the first missionary enterprise among them, under the patronage of a society in England for the propagation of the gospel in foreign parts. Here he had laboured and taught and prayed with a fervour which bowed all hearts to his sway, and gathered from the sons of the forest a church of devoted Christians. The harsh, guttural Indian language, in the fervent alembic of his loving study, was melted into a written dialect. A Bible and hymn book and spelling book seemed to open a path to an Indian literature. He taught them agriculture and many of the arts and trades of civilized life, but he could not avert the doom which seems to foreordain that those races shall dry up and pass away with their native forests as the brook dries up when the pines and hemlocks which shaded its horses are torn away in my boyhood three generations had passed since the apostle died the elms which two grateful indian catechumens had set out as a little sapling on either side of his gateway were now two beautiful pillars supporting each its firmament of leafy boughs and giving a grand air of scholarly retirement to the plain old-fashioned parsonage but the powerful indian tribe had dwindled to a few scattered families living an uncertain and wandering life on the outskirts of the thrift and civilization of the whites our minister was one of those cold clear-cut polished crystals that are formed in the cooling down of society after it has been melted and purified by a great enthusiasm Nobody can read Dr. Cotton Martha's biography of the first ministers of Massachusetts without feeling that they were men whose whole souls were in a state of fusion by their conceptions of an endless life, that the ruling forces which impel them were the sublimities of a world to come, and that, if there be such a thing possible as perfect faith in the eternal and invisible, and perfect loyalty to God and conscience, these men were pervaded by it more than this many of them were men of a softened and tender spirit bowed by past afflictions who had passed through the refining fires of martyrdom and come to this country counting not home or kindred dear to them that they might found a commonwealth for the beloved name and honour of one who died for them christo et ecclesiae was the seal with which they consecrated all their life work from the founding of harvard college down to the district school in every village these men lived in the full spirit of him who said i am crucified with christ nevertheless i live yet not i but christ liveth in me and the power of this invisible and mighty love shed a softening charm over the austere grandeur of their lives they formed a commonwealth where vice was well nigh impossible where such landmarks and boundaries and buttresses and breastworks hedged in and defended the morality of a community that to go very far out of the way would require some considerable ingenuity and enterprise the young men grew up grave and decorous through the nursing of church catechism and college all acting in one line and in due time many studious and quiet youths stepped in regular succession from the college to the theological course and thence to the ministry, as their natural and appointed work. They received the Articles of Faith as taught in their catechism, without dispute, and took their places calmly and without opposition, to assist in carrying on a society where everything had been arranged to go under their direction, and they were the recognized and appointed leaders and governors. The Reverend Mr. Lothrop had come of good ministerial blood for generations back, his destination had always been for the pulpit he was possessed of one of those calm quiet sedate natures to whom the temptations of turbulent nerves or vehement passions are things utterly incomprehensible now however stringent and pronounced may be the forms in which one's traditional faith may have been expressed it is certain that temperament gradually and with irresistible power modifies one's creed those features of a man professed belief, which are unsympathetic with his nature, become, to his mind, involved in a perpetual haze and a cloud of disuse, while certain others, which are congenial, become vivid and pronounced, and thus, practically, the whole faith of the man changes without his ever being aware of the fact himself. Parson Lothrop belonged to a numerous class in the third generation of Massachusetts clergy, commonly called Arminian, men in whom this insensible change had been wrought from the sharply defined and pronounced calvinism of the early fathers they were mostly scholarly quiet men of calm and philosophic temperament who having from infancy walked in all the traditions of a virtuous and pious education and passed from grade to grade of their progress with irreproachable quiet and decorum came to regard the spiritual struggles and conflicts the wrestlings and tears the fastings and temptations of their ancestors with the secret scepticism to dwell on moralities virtues and decorums rather than on those soul-searching spiritual mysteries which still stood forth unquestioned and uncontradicted in their confessions of faith parson lothrop fulfilled with immaculate precision all the proprieties exacted in his station all town having been originally an indian missionary station an annual stipend was paid the pastor of this town from a fund originally invested in england for the conversion of the indians and so parson lothrop had the sounding board of elliot's pulpit put up over the great armchair in his study and used to call thither weekly the wandering remnants of indian tribes to be catechized he did not, like his great predecessor, lecture them on the original depravity of the heart, the need of a radical and thorough regeneration by the Holy Spirit of God, or the power of Jesus as a saviour from sin, but he talked to them of the evil of drunkenness and lying and idleness, and exhorted them to be temperate and industrious, and when they, notwithstanding his exhortations, continued to lead an unthrifty, wandering life, he calmly expressed his conviction that they were children of the forest a race destined to extinction with the progress of civilization but continued his labours for them with automatic precision his sunday sermons were well-written specimens of the purest and most elegant addisonian english and no mortal could find fault with a word that was in them as they were sensible rational and religious as far as they went Indeed. Mr. Lothrop was quite an elegant scholar, and student in literature, and more than once surprise had been expressed to him that he should be willing to employ his abilities in so obscure a town, and for so inconsiderable a salary. His reply was characteristic. My salary is indeed small, but it is as certain as the Bank of England, and retirement and quiet give me leisure for study." he however mended his worldly prospects by a matrimonial union with a widow lady of large property from one of the most aristocratic families of boston mrs dorothea lucretia dixwell was the widow of a tory merchant who by rare skill in trimming his boat to suit the times had come through the revolutionary war with a handsome property unimpaired which dying shortly after he left to his widow mrs dixwell was in heart and soul an englishwoman an adorer of church and king, a worshipper of aristocracy and all the powers that be. She owned a pew in King's Chapel and clung more punctiliously than ever to her prayer-book, when all other memorials of our connection with the mother country has departed. Could it be thought that the elegant and rich widow could smile on the suit of an obscure country congregational clergyman? Yet she did, and for it there were many good reasons. Parson Lothrop was a stately, handsome, well-proportioned man, and had the formal and ceremonious politeness of a gentleman of the old school. And by family descent, Mrs. Dorothea's remembrance could trace back his blood to that of some very solid families among the English gentry. And as there were no more noblemen to be had in America, marrying a minister in those days was the next best thing to it. And so Mrs. Dixwell became Mrs. Parson Lothrop, and made a processional entrance into Old Town in her own coach, and came therein to church the first Sunday after her marriage in all the pomp of a white brocade, with silver flowers on it of life size, and white satin slippers with heels two inches high. This was a great grace to show to a congregational church, but Mrs. Lothrop knew the duty of a wife and conformed to it heroically nor was parson lothrop unmindful of the courtesies of a husband in this matrimonial treaty for it was stipulated and agreed that madam lothrop should have full liberty to observe in her own proper person all the festivals and fasts of the church of england should be excused from all company and allowed to keep the seclusion of her own apartment on good friday and should proceed immediately thereafter in her own coach to boston to be present at the easter services in king's chapel the same procession to Boston in her own coach took place also on Whit Sunday and Christmas. Moreover, she decked her house with green boughs and made mince pies at Christmas time, and in short, conducted her housekeeping in all respects as a zealous member of the Church of England ought. In those days of New England, the minister and his wife were considered the temporal and spiritual superiors of everybody in the parish. The idea which has since gained ground of regarding the minister and his family as a sort of stipendiary attachment and hired officials of the parish, to be overlooked schooled advised rebuked and chastened by every deacon and deacon's wife or rich and influential parishioner had not then arisen parson lothrop was so calmly awful in his sense of his own position and authority that it would have been a sight worth seeing to witness any of his parish coming to him as deacons and influential parishioners nowadays feel at liberty to come to their minister with suggestions and admonitions his manner was ever gracious and affable as of a man who habitually surveys every one from above and is disposed to listen with indulgent courtesy and has advice in reserve for all seekers but there was not the slightest shadow of anything which encouraged the most presuming to offer counsel in return and so the marriage with the rich episcopal widow her processional entry into old town the coach and outriders the brocade and satin slippers were all submitted to on the part of the old town people without a murmur the fact is that the parson himself felt within his veins the traditional promptings of a far-off church and king ancestry and relished with a calm delight a solemn trot to the Meeting-House behind a pair of fat decorous old family horses with a black coachman in livery on the box It struck him as sensible and becoming So also he liked a sideboard loaded with massive family plate warmed up by the ruby hues of old wines of fifty years ripening Gleaming through crystal decanters and well-trained man servants and maid servants through whom his wig his shoes and all his mortal belongings received daily and suitable care he was to mrs. Dorothea the most deferential of husbands always rising with stately courtesy to offer her a chair when she entered an apartment and Hastening to open the door for her if she wished to pass out and passing every morning and evening The formal gallantries and inquiries in regard to her health and well-being Which he felt that her state and condition required? fancy if you can the magnificent distance at which this sublime couple stood above a little ten-year-old boy who wore a blue checked apron and every day pattered barefoot after the cows and who at the time this story of myself begins had just by reaching up on his bare little tiptoes struck the great black knocker on the front door the door was opened by a stately black servant who had about him an indistinct yet perceptible atmosphere of ministerial gravity and dignity looking like a black doctor of divinity is mr lothrop at home i said blushing to the roots of my hair yes sonny said the black condescendingly won't you please tell him father's dying and mother wants him to come quick and with that what with awe and what with grief i burst into tears the kind-hearted black relaxed from his majesty at once and said lord bless your soul why don't crow now honey and I'll just call missus and In fact before I knew it He had opened the parlor door and ushered me into the august presence of Lady Lothrop as she used to be familiarly called in our village She was a tall thin sallow woman looking very much like those portraits by Copley that still adorn some old houses in Boston but she had a gentle voice and a compassionate womanly way with her she comforted me with a cake which she drew from the closet in the sideboard decanted some very choice old wine into a bottle which she said i was to carry to my mother and be sure to tell her to take a little of it herself she also desired me to give her a small book which she had found of use in times of affliction called the mourner's companion consisting mainly of choice selections from the english book of common prayer when the minister came into the room i saw that she gave a conjugal touch of the snowy plaited frill on his ruffled shirt and a thoughtful inspection to the wide linen cambric frills which set off his well-formed hand and which were a little discomposed by rubbing over his writing-table nay even upon one of them a small stain of ink was visible as the minister unknown to himself had drawn his ruffles over an undried portion of his next sunday's sermon dinah must attend to this she said here's a spot requiring salts of lemon and my dear she said in an insinuating tone holding out a richly bound velvet prayer-book would you not like to read our service for the visitation of the sick it is so excellent i am well aware of that my love said the minister repelling her prayer-book with a gentle stateliness but i assure you dorothea it would not do no it would not do I thought the good lady sighed as her husband left the house and looked longingly after him through the window as he walked down the yard. She probably consoled herself with the reflection that one could not have everything, and that her spouse, if not in the established Church of England, was every way fitted to adorn it, had he only been there. End of chapter 1